The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Socialism is on the rise. Despite being responsible for the deaths of over a hundred million people. The full collapse of the Soviet Union, the crumbling nations of North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela. The totalitarian police state of China. Socialists are coming out of the shadows. They're claiming virtue and moral superiority. I think it's horrifying enough just to watch the spoils of global socialism from the safety of our own borders. But this isn't a distant problem anymore. Our two great oceans that have always protected us, they don't insulate us anymore. It's already infiltrated our government. It's dismantled our values. Brick. My devastating brick. I talk to people all the time. They'll say, oh, we don't have anything to worry about. It can't happen here. The Constitution will save us. I mean, the founders, they created a system specifically designed to protect us from things like this. Really? Really? Does anybody even know the Constitution anymore? couldn't be a Lenin here or a Mao or a Castro. Yeah, well, that's exactly what those people said. Hitler wasn't Hitler until he was in power killing people. Stalin wasn't Stalin until he got power and started killing people. And what do both of those systems have in common? Socialism. What if I were to tell you that the socialists that we're talking about, that we're watching every day, they don't need a violent revolution to seize power. The coup that they are plotting would be completely legal. It would be operating within the boundaries of our own system. This isn't some made-up plan. This has been planned decades ago. I told you once that the masks would eventually come off, and they have. The new left, the progressives. Now, they're now openly calling themselves socialists, even democratic socialists. And their plan is entering a very dangerous endgame stage. How do I know this? We found a document that was smuggled into the United States through the Iron Curtain in 1960. Then it was just lost. Nobody paid attention to it. But it describes exactly what's happening to us right now in great detail. My researchers found it again. We'll begin to show it to you tonight. It's the blueprint of how to legally and within the framework of our own system take over a country and flip it. It was originally written as a communist victory report. (laughs) But I have to tell you, 
as my staff and I read it, it chilled us to the bone. They tell me what's wrong. We see it for what it is. A roadmap to socialism. A warning from the dead. Hello, America. Thank you for watching. Tonight, I'm, I'm going to share with you a piece of history that you most likely have never heard. And when I finish, tonight, you will see what is happening to our country and on the news every single day. And you will see it, I believe, in a whole new light. But that's when you will have a choice to make. Each of us will have to, after you see this special, say, do I dismiss this? Do I mock it? Do I investigate? Do I double my efforts to do my own research and my own homework? And then if I find it to be true and accurate, warn as many as can hear my voice. Unfortunately, most people are going to dismiss. And, and really not for any other reason than human nature. Human nature is a, it's a really, it's an interesting thing. Sometimes human nature is funny. Uh, sometimes it keeps us alive. It's our, inflex, our, our, um, our um, instincts and our reflexes and reason. But other times, it can lead to our death because it is telling us something that isn't helpful. The most dangerous yet really necessary human trait is the one that we've spoken about many times before. It's called the normalcy bias. This is a mental state people enter when facing a disaster. It makes people shut down and not see what is usually highly unlikely. Sometimes the line between life and death is so small that it's, it seems impossible to notice. And it comes from our brain, uh, enabled to, in order to keep us alive in the long run. Our brain does amazing things. And the normalcy bias helps, helps us each dismiss those very high impact but low probability events that change the world or change our life. A good example is what happened in the towers of 9-11. Those people that, when those planes hit those towers, that went back to their office just to turn off their computer or shut off their, their lights or grab their purse, they never made it out. While the same people who were just in the next cubicle, who immediately ran for the exits, they survived. They recognized something horrible could happen. The others saw the towers and went, it could never collapse. What, what could possibly happen? And you know what? We see this in every single disaster film. One of my favorites is from the Poseidon Adventure. We're going to keep settling deeper and deeper. We may even go under before we get up to the bottom to cut our way out. But it's something to try as a chance. We might make it. If you stay here, you'll certainly die. We are staying with the Berser. <laughs> I remember seeing this, and it always seems so obvious in the theater. I mean, when you're watching a movie in the theater, you're, you're thinking to yourself, hey, really not a good idea to leave that shaft 
that runs from the surface right directly to the core. You know, we, we see it coming. Somehow or another, they didn't. Here's another one. If everyone is going to die, if you die, then perhaps you shouldn't go yourself to the big red tree. But the normalcy bias stops even the most unbeatable from making stupid moves that dismiss the unthinkable. What we're talking about tonight is unthinkable. But it, it comes from a place where we say, it can't happen to me. It can't happen here. I'm different. No, no, no. We're different. It's, it's different this time. I've seen this in my own life. When I went to New York and I spoke to all of the financial experts before the banking and auto industry collapsed in 2008, everybody said I was a nut. They all told me, no, 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 Glenn, you don't understand. There's systems in place that will prevent a collapse. But when I would ask them, really, what are those systems? Nobody really could explain them. Nobody understood those systems. They all had trust in a system that they no longer really understood. It really boiled down to they hadn't seen a collapse. I mean, the stock market, everything was historically pretty stable since 1929. And so they didn't believe it could happen. But just as past performance does not guarantee future results in stock returns, our future is not guaranteed by what has happened in the past. It is our actions, or in some cases our inactions, that make those past catastrophic events much more likely. I'm going to give you a couple of ground rules before we begin. First of all, the words communist and Nazi. We're going to try not to name-call anybody. We, we, we've got to stop throwing around these terms with such regularity because they don't have any meaning anymore. Everybody's either a Nazi or a communist. And that's not true. If I were somebody who actually wanted the Nazis or the communists to make a return, I would encourage people to make that word a common descriptor for every kind of behavior in society because it would weaken the impact of those labels when real signs of trouble were in sight. So we're not going to use those words unless they are true and total descriptors of a person, a group, or a policy. I also don't want you to watch this special and take anything I say as gospel. Do not take it as true because I said it. I want, in fact, I insist that you take what I share with you tonight and begin your own research. I want to be wrong. But I can promise you that what comes next will look very much like what I'm going to show you tonight if we all don't wake up to the true warning signs that are right in front of each of us. Time is running short. Trouble is coming. And you know what's amazing to me? I don't care if you're left or right. Everyone feels it. No matter what side of the political aisle, we all know it. You know, Donald Trump, he's going to be a totalitarian dictator. Barack Obama, he's going to be a totalitarian dictator. What does each side have in common? They see that we could lose our freedom. And it's incumbent upon each of us right now to do an honest search and inventory of the facts and face the truth, even if it's the truth we don't wish to accept. But we so often get angry and anger stops the brain from using logic. If I were your enemy and I needed to defeat you, 
I would get you to react with anger. I'd do everything I could to make you angry. Anger triggers fight or flight, and neither of those help. In fact, they'll only assist in our quick demise. You need to be level-headed and ready to engage with reason and logic. That's why I'm going to show you this tonight. And one more thing. There are going to be a ton of people that tell you that I am just a fear monger, that I don't know what I'm talking about, I don't have a college education, or a million other reasons not to listen to this warning. I am not going to assign a motive to anybody who will tell you that. But I want you to know, the only reason for me telling you these things is because I believe them to be true. And without a course correction, we will all suffer the same fate as those who came before us. I'm also going to ask you to subscribe to The Blaze. I made this free so it could be seen by as many people. It's taken us about two months to do this research and put this program together. Uh, we, are, we are currently on the backbone of Facebook and YouTube. Our, our very own Stephen Crowder is about to lose his YouTube platform for unbelievable reasons that I don't think are accurate. But voices are being silenced. And I ask that if you find any value in this tonight, you please support us. But the most important thing is do not fear. There is nothing to fear. There is, however, a lot to do, a lot to study, and a lot to save. But before we move forward, I really have to kind of take you back. I have to take you back to this chalkboard. If you remember while I was at Fox, this is the chalkboard that came from the prediction of the caliphate that everybody mocked. It was during my last year at Fox, and I remember saying to my producer, Stu, we die on our sword on this every single show. And I'm bringing this back up because it actually plays a very important role in what I'm going to show you today. Radical Islamists, communist and socialist will work together against Israel, will work together against capitalism, will work together to overthrow and overturn stability. The document that I'm going to show you tonight explains everything, everything that's going on right now, from Antifa to Planned Parenthood, Occupy Wall Street, the gender issue, militant feminism, Me Too, the Green New Deal, literally everything that we're seeing. I am not saying that they are using this, but it is the blueprint to fundamentally and legally transform a country to socialism, authoritarianism, and it was written way back in the early 1950s by the architects of a peaceful revolution. From a free market to a dictatorship in three years without a single shot being fired. It's pretty incredible. And this plays a role. And let me go over this. Anarchist, Islamist, communist, and socialism work together against Israel. Are they doing that? Yes. Work together against capitalism. Yes. Work together to overthrow stability. Well, the big thing was people said that Islamists and communists and socialists would never work together. Well, they are. And we're seeing even Chris Cuomo last night on CNN said, you know, there's some really good things about Antifa. Really? They said that Islamists and uh, socialists 
would never work together. But as you see, we're seeing that right now. They're working together. The only thing that I couldn't find was communists. But the theory was that the Middle East, it started over in Tunisia, if you remember right. So over in Tunisia, a guy set himself on fire, and then it spread over to Egypt, and then Libya, and the whole region was up in arms, and it was the Arab Spring. But because of that, what happened? It destabilized the entire region. We got the caliphate in Syria with ISIS and Iraq. And then because of all of this unrest, there was a huge immigrant problem. People had to go someplace. And so all of the same experts today that are telling us everything's fine on our border said, Europe, you have to take all of these people. There was no checks. There were no balances. They just went up to Europe. And what has happened? It has spread, it became contagious, it swept the Middle East, and then it destabilized Europe, and now the rest of the world. How? Because what's happening on our border? I, I, I actually thought, you know, I can't find a communist that is actually working together. I mean, the Women's March, they excused him, they're excusing her, they excuse them. The socialist. I forgot the communist. This is Emma Lasano. She's from Chicago. She is one of the main brains behind all of the groups coming to the border. She is a communist from Chicago, as we outlined on one of our shows. This has been complete, and it was this summer that I realized this board is now finished. So now what happens? Well, in our research, we found this document, and it is incredible. But before we get into it, I want to I talk to you about something. Everything that I say tonight, I'm going to say some things that just aren't said anymore, but they are too important to worry about feelings. So if you have feelings that are hurt, I'm sorry, I really am. But as Ben Shapiro says, facts don't really care about your feelings. But if any time you feel angered by something that I've said, you might have already been triggered, please just write it down, continue to watch. Come back to it. Ask yourself, why am I so upset? Is there any truth to what he said? Don't allow yourself to fall back into slogans or name-calling. Prove your point, and not to me, but to yourself. Don't have somebody, don't dismiss this show or allow somebody to dismiss this show that hasn't thought it through. I'm going to lay out all the facts because it's going to be you that will need to stand for one side or the other. It will come down to you. So here's really offensive fact number one. Socialism, not a free market economy with a giant welfare state like Canada or Sweden, but an actual socialist state could easily be charged and convicted of being a serial killer or a mass murderer. Let me show you how. This is according to the FBI. If someone kills two or more people with a period of time between each murder, we call them a serial killer. If a person kills four or more people in one murder, we call them a mass murderer. So using the most conservative numbers, socialism is responsible for 100 million deaths. Socialism has killed more people in the 20th century than anything else other than disease. 
Now, how in the world has a system so barbaric and murderous been given such a benign name? Socialism? Would any other system or ideology be given such leeway? At the same time, what's being denigrated is capitalism, and capitalism is responsible for saving over a billion people from extreme poverty in the last 15 years alone, while socialism has killed over 100 million. Let me show you something you never see here. Firing squads on civilians. They don't exist in America, but they sure did in the Soviet Union. They sure do in North Korea. They did in Cuba. They did in China. In fact, they're building concentration camps now for Muslims in China. And it was in China that tanks were sent in to stare down an unarmed Chinese civilian. Do you remember this? This guy, we don't even know who he is. He was brave. That is socialism. A state that doesn't care about the individual. And just yesterday, echoing the same memories of Tiananmen Square, Venezuelan armored vehicles actually and purposefully ran down civilians in the street. This is not the behavior of any kind of civilized society that values life. This is a society that says the individual has no worth. This is akin to ISIS more than anything else. In fact, ISIS did exactly the same thing during Bastille Day in France. Do you remember this in Nice? Where they just took a truck and run people over. These are the atrocities that happen when the collective is valued over the individual. But they don't happen here in America. Yeah, we've got our problems, bad problems. But you've never seen a picture of the United States government troops digging a ditch and just shooting people into the ditch. Why? Because we value the right and the lives of the individual. These are the reasons why, in this country, socialists have to deny their political affiliation at all costs until recently. And they are beginning to fully take off their masks and reveal themselves out in public. I think it was 2008 or 2009, I told you this would happen. When I was at Fox, I warned you that this would happen. Remember? The radicals reveal themselves. They'll become unafraid. I told you this, and I believe I set this up with something along the lines of, look out, because we'll be in trouble when the mask starts to come off. I told you about a year ago that as it would come unraveled, the radicals would start revealing themselves. Watch. I think these people are close. I think they're dying to tell us what the real agenda is. I think they're close to taking the mask off. I I love this. Me watching me watching me. But that was just for personal fun. I want to show you the end stages of freedom. Socialism, communism, and fascism. The reason socialists have been so successful from hiding their murderous past is they've been very busy masking their relationship with the rest of the radical left. If you just tack on democratic in front of your name, socialist, boom, less scary. However, I want you to think like this. Just because you vote for slavery through the democratic process does not make slavery freedom. Even democratically decreed slavery is still slavery. 
But there's something else that people like Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez just don't want you to know, and it's this. Socialism, communism, and fascism, they're all cut from the same cloth. All three isms have three things in common, and they're important. One, capitalism, the free market system, is the enemy. Two, the needs of the collective outweigh the needs of the individual. And three, the end result is the same every single time. It is tyranny and a bloodbath. Don't believe me? Every home should have the black book of communism. I'll tell you every single time socialism has been tried and what the death count was. But socialists always tend to cover up this little inconvenient truth. And you can't blame them. I mean, how far would you go if you're, you know, you're promoting a system of government that both Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, what the hell, throw Mussolini and Pol Pot in this, where those guys would all go, yeah, that's better than what you got in America. I don't think you're going to get a lot of you know, people signing your petition. But let me share something from an actual democratic socialist. This is somebody who is honest. This is from uh, Jacobin Magazine. This is the nation's leading socialist magazine. So this this is not some hack magazine. This is a serious socialist magazine. And this was a response by one of their writers on what democratic socialists actually want. I'm going to quote. Here's the truth. In the long run, democratic socialists want to end capitalism. Now, the author is a self-identified democratic socialist, and they go on to explain why they are intent on pushing for Medicare for all. Quote, many observers see groups like DSA pushing for policies like Medicare for all and decide we must actually just be New Deal liberals who are simply confused about the true meaning of socialism. That's not true. Still quoting, our goal is not to rein in the excesses of capitalism for a few decades at a time. We want to end our society's subservience to the market. Medicare for all is an instructive example. She then goes on to talk about how Medicare for all isn't real socialism. As I told you, socialism cannot be confused with a giant welfare state. The real goal in the future, according to the Democratic Socialists, would be to get something like the British NHS. You know, if you want this, why don't you just say it? Why can't we have, why the cloak and dagger? I'll tell you why. Because Americans won't go for it. You have to lie to them. Now, this is exactly what I said. The true goal of Obamacare was from the beginning. I played something and everybody denied it. No one would talk about it. But this is videotape of one of the architects of Obamacare, Jacob Hacker. He's speaking at the Tides Foundation on what the entire purpose of Obamacare really is. Someone once said to me, this is a Trojan horse for a single payer. And I said, well, it's not a Trojan horse, right? It's just right there. I'm telling you, we're going to get there. Over time, slowly, but we'll move away from reliance on employment-based health insurance, as we should, but we'll do it in a way that we're not going to frighten people into thinking they're going to lose their private insurance. We're going to give them a choice of public and private insurance when they're in the pool, and we're going to let them keep their private employment-based insurance if their employer continues to provide it. So the same people who told us that we were racist for saying that they were not going for single-payer health care, even if we had them on video saying this, 
They're now pushing for single-payer health care, Medicare for all, and they're saying that we're somehow or another bigots, racists. I don't even know what we are now. That we say, we don't, no, no, we don't want that. That will end capitalism. And yet, we have them in their own magazines and in their own words talking about ending capitalism. So let's say they eventually succeed. What's next? What is the ultimate end game? Single-payer health care? No, let's go back to the words of the Democratic Socialist. Quote, Social democratic reforms like Medicare for All are, in the eyes of DSA, part of the long, uneven process of building that support and eventually overthrowing capitalism. No matter how hard you try to spin it, all three systems, communism, socialism, and fascism, they are all rooted in the same leftist Marxist ideology. They all view capitalism as the enemy. They all favor the collective over the individual. And they all end in tyranny. You know, it's amazing because there are two great lies that that are in the modern era. And the first one is, oh, the devil doesn't exist. Really? And the second one is that fascism has anything at all to do with the political right here in America. Socialism, communism, and fascism. They are all kissing cousins. So, if socialism is the common denominator every single time, and it has, it has this for a track record, over 100 million dead, how in the world do you get people to do it? Well, the answer of why it's being done is always about one thing, control. Some person or some group always wants to come forward in the midst of two different kinds of scenarios. Times of great suffering or times of great prosperity. Lenin, Hitler, Mussolini, Mao, uh, all of them came during times of great suffering. But that suffering would ultimately pale in comparison to the suffering that they'd endure under socialism. If you are somebody who you don't know the, who the hell I even am, you're somebody who is saying, I'm going to vote for the democratic socialists, and you're young. I know, Lenin, Hitler, Mao, they're all distant memories. They're ghosts from some high school textbook that you probably didn't read. Boring. But the most modern example is currently being played out right now. And the horror is right in our face. But even still, the leftists will refuse to blame socialism. Now, unlike Russia, Germany, and China, Venezuelan socialism actually began in a time of historic prosperity. How does a nation, a modern nation, go crazy? Well, I will give you Exhibit A. Venezuela of 1950, there wasn't any other country in South America at the time that had more prosperity and more more promise and hope. It was really from the discovery of oil during World War I that revealed that Venezuela was sitting on top of the largest oil reserve in the world, over 300 billion barrels. To give you a little context on just how massive that is, Saudi Arabia has 266 billion in oil reserves. The United States, we only have 33 billion. So to call Venezuela an oil juggernaut, at the time the world's largest exporter, is a massive understatement. 
1950, the Venezuelan people were the fourth richest in the world, with a per capita GDP of just three spots lower than the United States. Capitalism was working for Venezuela, and the people were reaping the benefits. Caracas, the swinging city of Venezuela. Good climate, fine buildings, wide highways with plenty on them. All in all, a pretty nice place to be for many reasons. Caracas is a good place in which to be young. With senoritas of this caliber in abundance, the young men of the city couldn't agree more. But things really began to change around 1970. It was the oil boom. And this is two decades before Hugo Chavez comes in. And the leftists begin to infiltrate the government. The Democratic Action Party. Notice the word democratic in this. Well, they are preaching all the same things socialists usually do. They use populist tactics and they nationalized the oil and steel industries. This is a system that had been working and was responsible for the Venezuelan economic miracle. But it was now being turned in a new direction. Well, this causes the economy to begin to crumble and riots are rocking the streets and the workers go on strike. This is the time that a young military colonel began to emerge as the speaker for the oppressed. His name was Hugo Chavez. Chavez was elected president in 1998 with promises of a socialist utopia. He was going to bring forth a, a Bolivarian revolution. He won public support by demonizing the rich, see if any of this sounds familiar, large corporations and landowners. So in 2001, he created the Enabling Act, and this is what gave him the power to begin seizing property and wealth. Large estates were just gobbled up and then given to the people. Capitalists in both the government and the industry were exposed and ostracized as Chavez consolidated his power. He even nationalized all the telecommunications industry and stifled all negative media reporting. Don't think that this couldn't happen here. Now, as business owners protested, they were silenced. They were alienated by Chavez's growing populist fan base, and he poured millions to fund social programs that kept everybody quiet and happy, at least until he ran out of other people's money. When Chavez died in 2013, Venezuela already ranked number one on the World Misery Index. Just two years later, inflation had risen over 100%. 90% of the population was now living in poverty. Now, 2019 looks a lot different than 1950, or even when Chavez took over. The Venezuelan inflation rate is projected to hit now 10 million percent, worse than Zimbabwe. The average monthly income now is only enough to buy 12 eggs and two pounds of cheese. Nobody's eating a normal meal. They're chasing down cows in open fields. They're desperate for food, eating out of garbage cans. They've already killed and eaten all of the animals in the zoo, and the average Venezuelan has now lost 24 pounds in the last year. Over 3 million people have fled Venezuela in the past three years. Socialists successfully infiltrated one of the most prosperous nations in the entire world and turned it bottom-up, top-down, inside out. It's a post-apocalyptic wasteland. They turned their own people against one another. 
There is undoubtedly a crisis in Venezuela, and that crisis is named socialism. A warning from the dead. Before we get back to Glenn, a quick update on Venezuela as the situation changes by the minute. May Day is, of course, a public holiday in Venezuela, but this year the holiday was marked by escalating protests. As the fight for the presidency of Venezuela rages on for the second day, it still remains unclear exactly who will come out ahead. This morning, opposition leader Juan Guaido, who has been recognized as interim president of Venezuela by the United States, England, and over 50 other countries, including most of Latin America, encouraged Venezuelans to show their support, tweeting another call to action. Today we continue with more strength than ever in Venezuela. Guaido and his supporters contend that he is the legitimate president and commander of the armed forces and that Maduro's re-election was marred with massive irregularities, fraud and coercion. Thousands of Venezuelans have taken to the streets demanding Maduro step down, but so far he has refused. Just yesterday, video showed an armored military vehicle accelerating over a median barrier and mowing down protesters. Earlier today, National Guard troops launched tear gas at stone-throwing protesters blocking a nearby highway. Maduro described protesters as guilty of serious crimes and warned that they would not go unpunished. Maduro, who is backed by Cuba, China, and Russia, also accused the United States of instigating the coup. According to Mike Pompeo, Maduro was ready to flee the country Tuesday morning. He even had an airplane waiting for him on the tarmac, but at the urging of the Russian government, he remained. Pro-Maduro protesters have also taken to the streets to show their support, but Guaido insists that he and his supporters will not back down until they achieve their objective. Uh, before we get back to Glenn, I want to bring in Stu to talk about what we have uh, going on tonight. Thanks, Sarah. I'm really glad I was walking by just then. Um, <laughs> We have a, a pretty amazing show here, and I, I think you've seen the quality of it and how much has gone into it. And it is really important that if uh, you can support uh, by subscribing, if you want content like this, we really do need uh, your support. If you can go to blazetv.com slash Glenn, we have a special promo code for you tonight. It's double the savings that you would normally get, $20 off. Uh, go to blazetv.com slash Glenn and use the promo code GB20OFF, gb 20 off. Uh, we're going to be going through a question and answer thing later on uh, where you're going to get your questions. If you're on Twitter, uh, you can tweet uh, with the hashtag Glenn TV Live. Uh, Glenn's going to be answering questions, uh, your cues, his A's. It's going to be uh, pretty exciting coming up. And as well, we have a great panel coming up to dis- discuss everything that you're going to see. If you can't subscribe and, you know, if, if, if it's just not a financially feasible for you right now, totally cool. We would really appreciate you sharing this content. Uh, Glenn went out of his way to make this free because he wants to make sure this is seen. But as you can see, a lot goes into this, so we really want the eyeballs to get on it. People need to know this information. Um, And if you can share it, if you can like on Facebook, it would really make a big difference uh, to us. Uh, Anything you can do. Uh, Subscribe on YouTube. Uh, It really does get the word out there, and it helps all the fancy Mark Zuckerberg uh, algorithms so that people actually get to see this stuff. So uh, if you get a chance, either subscribe or uh, pass the word along. It would certainly mean a lot to us because this message is really important. Now, let's go back to Glenn. You know, you can't take over a country like the United States, or Venezuela for that matter, without a plan. It takes years of carefully laid plans. And there are certain elements that you have to have in place before you can gain control. 
Some have described this as a giant pincer strategy, where pressure is applied from two different angles. But if you look back at Venezuela for a second, leftists had infiltrated the government as far back as the 1970s, and they began setting the stage for socialism by first nationalizing the industries and with advocating for greater social programs. Socialists manning public office were pushing down. And by the time the economy began to get worse, the seeds they had planted were enough to get people in the streets to direct their anger at anyone who opposed them. This culminated in a mass labor strike and riots. Hugo Chavez was the byproduct of this pressure. It's something that I began noticing happening right here during the Obama administration. What some leftists call the pincer strategy, I called something else back at Fox. It is top-down, bottom-up, and inside-out. That's what this is. Top-down, bottom-up, inside-out. The financial crisis of 2008 was the ultimate linchpin that they were waiting for. Because you, you need a crisis, most times. You need a crisis. If you've laid the seeds, once you have a crisis, you can do it. 2008, to us, was the economic downturn that led Chavez back to Venezuela in the 1990s. It was exactly the same thing. And people say, who the hell do I blame for this? They came crying from the streets. It's those evil one percenters. The entire system is corrupt. That's how he got in. And that is what we've laid the groundwork for here. Do you really think that our economy is going to be as stable as it is forever? While the Obama administration filled up with radicals at the top, middlemen and organizations began funding radicals at both the top level and the bottom. We talked about people like George Soros and organizations like SCIU and ACORN. They helped them push policy and rally foot soldiers in the street. And do you remember how President Obama reacted to Occupy Wall Street? Watch. I think it expresses the frustrations that the American people feel that we had the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression, huge collateral damage all throughout the country, all across Main Street, and yet you're still seeing some of the same folks who acted irresponsibly uh, trying to fight efforts to crack down on abusive practices that got us into this problem in the first place. So yes, I think people are frustrated and you know, the, 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 the protesters uh, are giving voice to a more broad-based frustration about how our financial system works. Mm. He's just legitimized a Marxist movement to overthrow the free market system. That's what it was. He basically said Occupy Wall Street is just expressing the overall will of the people. Why didn't you just throw your clenched fist in the air and say workers of the world unite, drop the mic, and storm off the stage? Because Occupy Wall Street was not reflective of the people. It was just one of the movements, the astroturf, that began to rise up. Do you remember when President Obama actually praised Black Lives Matter for, quote, raising policing issues? Now, notice he didn't provide any facts or numbers. He just went along with the narrative. And the media helped him. They took the bait. They ran with it. 
Now, is it really that hard for the president of the United States to ask the DOJ what's going on and then relay that information to the American public? I mean, it's not like the attorney general is his direct employee or anything. So left without any kind of real government leadership, as usual, we're forced to do our own homework. And we either accept the ridiculousness of these narratives that all police are racist, or we look into it for ourselves and begin to feel alone. But let me show you some of the policing issues that President Obama helped legitimize. For instance, are cops shooting unarmed African Americans at will in record numbers? Well, last year, 47 unarmed people were shot by police. That's bad. 18 were black, 6 were Hispanic, and 23 were white. So not only are these instances rare, but they're not even weighted towards the black community. Other races are getting shot more often than African Americans. But what about the overall contact with police? Are police harassing the black community at a higher rate than whites? Again, the numbers just do not show this. The Bureau of Justice Statistics released this study in 2015, analyzing police contacts from 2002 to 2011. And what they found, on average, whites have more contacts with police than either blacks or Hispanics. This is top-down, bottom-up in action. It is the radicals at the very top enabling and supporting radicals at the bottom, and their goal is to turn the entire system inside out. Some might call that a revolution, but revolutions are always thought of as using guns. No matter how how many times it's tried, the results are predictably and tragically exactly the same. My name is Joanna Rodriguez. I was born in Caracas, Venezuela and grew up in Houston, Texas. I came to the United States uh, around 2001. My family still lives in Venezuela and is affected daily by what is happening with the Maduro and Chavez regime. The minimum wage in Venezuela is $3 a month and my family, even those with higher salaries, only ended up getting $20 a month. But goods are still priced at dollars, so a carton of eggs will cost you $3, and you just spent your entire month's salary on a carton of eggs. They are part of a giant chain of uh, on WhatsApp, a group message where they can barter and trade different necessities that they need. Um, So one of the main ones is a different type of medication. Hey, you know, I'm running low on this diabetes medicine. Would you trade me for a loaf of bread? Or I need flour. Would you be willing to trade me for sugar? A lot of them daily decide on whether they want to go to work or whether they want to wait in line for whatever food is available at that market on that day. The majority of my family still there is a lot older in Venezuela, so they remember it more vividly than I do. They tell me stories of how beautiful it was, um, what a great life they had, where even a middle class, lower middle class person had a normal life, normal job, and on the weekends they could go to the beach, they could take vacations, they could go to the movies and dinner with their family, and that doesn't exist anymore. Chavez came in, was very charismatic, and was very well liked by the poor and he provided them with hope that they were going to be represented and slowly things started to change in Venezuela for the worse and to where they are today.
Sometimes if they find out that you are opposed to the regime, you are uh, planted drugs. So whenever you have a normal stop or interaction with a police officer um, or National Guard member, they search you, they ask to see your car or your purse, and of course because you're innocent, you feel like you have nothing on you, you let them see whatever it is they need to see, and they plant drugs on you, and they take you to prison, take you to jail, and um, abuse them severely. Women, unfortunately, are sexually assaulted. It is not a situation um, that is pleasant whatsoever. My family is very optimistic of what is to come in Venezuela. I think that's something that's inherently within a lot of Venezuelans. We have so much hope for our beautiful country that was one of the richest in the world at one point. It has so many luxuries and beautiful landscapes. And they remain hopeful in Venezuela on the day-to-day. -day. They have to keep hope because at the end of the day, that's all that they have. And if they give up, what is at stake. It's their liberty. It's generations to come being oppressed by a dictator. I try to stay optimistic for them in hopes that we can see Venezuela be free in my lifetime and for generations to come. This document was never to, supposed to be seen by Western eyes. We're not really even sure when it was written, but we think it was sometime between 1950 and 1955. It was originally intended just for internal Communist Party eyes only. It was a strategy paper, and it was written by the official historian of the Czechoslovak uh, Communist Party. His name was Jan Kozak. We actually found this document by complete accident as we began to pick through um, other things that we were working on for socialism. Uh, we are working on a book that will come out next year. When we started reading this, our jaws hit the floor. It quickly became obvious why this document has been suppressed over the years. It is literally the playbook. It's a blueprint, if you will, for how socialists infiltrate and take over a government. And it is all legal and all within the bounds of a nation's constitution. Its contents were first heard spoken out loud when the communist delegates uh, referenced it at the International Parliamentary Union in London in 1957. But it was somehow acquired by Western assets four years later. And in 1962, it was presented and then later published by the House uh, Committee on Un-American Activities in the 87th Congress. The current title that you can find it online came from the last line of the foreword of the American reprint written by author John Howland Snow. And I want to quote it. Representative government can be made authoritarian, legally, piece by piece. The form remains an empty shell, and not a shot is fired. This truly is the Revolutionary Bible. 
it, it may not be known or even used by people today, but they are as if they are following its directions word by word, and they flip countries. Were the early leftists in Venezuela who were blazing a trail for Hugo Chavez following this? Are radicals within our own government doing the same? I don't know. But by the end of tonight's show, you will not be able to tell the difference between what you're seeing leftists do in our own country from what socialists successfully pulled off in Czechoslovakia in the late 1940s. And the history has remained repressed and a guarded secret really until tonight. We really, we so don't know our own history. Most people think that the former Warsaw Pact, and that is when Churchill and FDR and Stalin got together after the war and said, okay, here's how we're going to carve things up. We think that after this Warsaw Pact, um, the Soviets forcefully took places like Czechoslovakia, but that's not the case. The Yalta Agreement specifically forbade Stalin from doing that. The communists had to, some way, find a way to turn capitalist democracies to socialism without a gun, without a shot, without a revolution. So Russia is sitting there thinking, how are we going to do this? It all had to be done legally. And Czechoslovakia was the first test subject. Now, we all know what the history books say. The country, like most of the others under Stalin's boot, eventually flipped. But how it happened is never discussed. This is how it happened. The outcome was devastating, and the economic ramifications are still being dealt with to this day. Czechoslovakia began to crumble, as did the rest of those suffering under socialism. But before the communists instituted their plan, things in Czechoslovakia were much much different. The year? 1918. Prague. There was a new nation that was born. It was called Czechoslovakia. In its first 20 years as a country, Czechoslovakia was a free market economy, and it was one of the most robust in the world. That, however, is before the National Socialists, or the Nazis, and the International Socialists, the Communists, rolled in. But at the end of World War I, the Allies carved Czechoslovakia out of the old Astro-Hungarian Empire. And the new nation's first democratically elected president was Tomas Masaryk. Masaryk is considered the founding father of Czechoslovakia, and he spent a lot of time in the United States where he grew to admire the American model of democracy. Now, under Masaryk's leadership, Czechoslovakia started off on the right foot. I mean, it was really, really good for a while. But Masaryk always maintained that Czechoslovakia needed at least 50 years to establish a firm foundation of a free nation. But thanks to the Nazis, Czechoslovakia only got 20 years. But before we get to Hitler marching in, in the first decade after its founding in 1918... Czechoslovakia's gross domestic product increased by 52%. Its industrial production rose by 41%. Its armaments industry, largest in Europe. Its textile, glass, and shoe industries were the most advanced in the world. Czechoslovakia was a free and open market. It freely traded with all Western Europe. Agricultural production was healthier than it ever had been in the region. Food and consumer goods were plentiful. By 1928, had only 38,000 unemployed people. 
that was less than 1% of its population that was able to work. And before Czechoslovakia turned 20, its standard of living was one of the highest in Europe. It was the world's 10th most industrialized country. The young nation, it did have its share of challenges, especially in the fact that it was made up of, you know, several distinct groups of people, including two million citizens of German descent that lived in a western region called the Sudetenland. Now, here's where things really begin to break down. Even though it wasn't theirs to give, Britain and France gave the Sudetenland to Hitler, trying just to appease him at the Munich Conference in 1938. Now, this was used by Hitler just as a green light to take over the rest of Czechoslovakia six months later. When World War II finally ended in 1945, Czechoslovakia was briefly free again. And the president was Edvard Benesch. He was the protege of the founding father, remember him, Thomas Masaryk. And he returned from exile and tried to resume Czechoslovakia's founding principles. From the official residence... President Benesh issued a hopeful declaration of the political aims of reborn Czechoslovakia. Reorganizujeme v duchu důsledné demokracie politické a hospodářské svůj stát, aby mohl hrát svou tradiční roli pevného středoevropského mírového činitele Things were really looking up quickly. Czechoslovakia rebuilt its bridges and railroads. Farmers got back on their feet with over $200 million worth of supplies from the U.S. And with that, they were able to produce a good harvest in 1946 and 1947, avoiding the famine that the rest of Europe was going through. They were pretty much the breadbasket of Europe. By the end of 1947, Czechoslovakia's industrial and agricultural production were almost back to pre-World War II levels. The nation could actually see light at the end of the tunnel. The problem was, in a not-too-distant land... Someone saw blood in the water, and it was the Soviets. Using the document that we will explore in a moment, they laid the groundwork for a communist coup in February 1948 that ensured Czechoslovakia's capitalism was put into deep hibernation for the next four decades. The new communist regime converted the Czechoslovakian economy into a bleak socialist clone of the economic system of Russia. There were long lines at shops almost immediately for minimal goods. Private land ownership was strictly limited. The state took control of all agriculture, and as a result, 14 years after World War II ended, Czechoslovakia still hadn't reached its pre-war farm production level. By 1960, Czechoslovakia had the lowest industrial growth rate in all of Eastern Europe. All the media and the entire education system, they were immediately put under state control. Homes were bugged, searched by the secret police. 250,000 Czechs were imprisoned for political dissent because they didn't like this new socialist idea. Families that were blacklisted by the communist government for any reason couldn't get good jobs or pursue higher education. The state restricted organized religion and closed down all 216 monasteries in the country. In the early 1950s, while America was shamefully looking for communists and Joe McCarthy hearings, Stalin put out his own order. The Czech communist held show trials for military leaders, Catholics, Jews, democratic politicians. Uh, Their story ended a little differently than Joe McCarthy's. In socialist Czechoslovakia, 
they had 180 executions. Almost overnight, freedom and prosperity became a distant memory in Czechoslovakia. So between two world wars, Czechoslovakia was one of the most thriving democracies in the world and an economic leader of Central Europe with a free market system. But the monstrous heads of socialism, Nazism, communism, ruined the hopes and dreams and the lives of an entire nation. But out of those ruins in Czechoslovakia, a document is found and possibly provides us with foreknowledge of what's happening here in America. A document that outlines the path to socialism. A warning from the dead. What's disturbing about this document is that it took communists only three years, from 1945 to 1948, to completely turn Czechoslovakia from capitalism to socialism. And not a single shot was fired. Not a single violent part of a revolution. So how? How did they pull this off? Kozak, the guy who wrote this, very critical in the document for how socialists had attempted... Uh, a project such as Czechoslovakia in the past. He noted that in other countries, socialists had successfully infiltrated high echelons within the government, but they failed to do one thing, provide any kind of pressure from the bottom. Leftists can get elected to public office all day, and they can infiltrate the bureaucracy, but without foot soldiers on the ground for them to quietly support and rile up, Governments never change. That is the key here. Now think back to Venezuela. They elected a socialist-leaning president back in the 1960s. But nothing happened until there was a massive labor strike and riots in the streets. And that is what brought Hugo Chavez to power. You can elect socialists like Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez all day. But if they're not supporting a bottom-up movement at the same time to mobilize, harass, shame, and bully others into compliance, the system will hold strong. Now, consider that principle, and then listen to this from Maxine Waters in that context. Already, you have members of your cabinet uh, that are being booed out of restaurants. Who have protesters taking up at their house. Who sang no peace, no sleep. No peace, no sleep. Let's make sure we show up wherever we have to show up. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd. Most people just pass this off as, oh, that's just crazy Maxine Waters. But what she was spouting was not crazy. She, whether she knows it or not, is following this revolutionary playbook to a T. And it's been done before, and it's exactly how they did it in Czechoslovakia. This document is the first time the top-down, bottom-up strategy has been described in detail by people that actually pulled it off and flipped a nation. They described the bottom-up's role in three key areas— It systematically supports the revolutionaries in organs of power, enhances their strength, and makes up for numerical weakness. In other words, they realize that they're going to be in the minority, 
but they need to appear much larger than they actually are. For example, Maxine Waters can make a claim on MSNBC that people all over the country are revolting against the GOP en masse. But if they can get, oh, I don't know, let's say a YouTube video of people harassing Ted Cruz and his wife in a restaurant, if they can get that to go viral, or let's say Antifa, a squad camping out at Tucker Carlson's house, the appearance is that this is rampant public dissent against Republicans or against people who believe in the Constitution that's breaking out all over the country. It has a direct effect on limiting the influence and positions of waverers and enemies standing in the path of the future progress of the revolution, end quote. Simply put, you have to intimidate. You have to make it seem like they're everywhere. It's one thing to oppose Jeff Flake on a live shot from the rotunda. It's a whole new ball game to do that, plus unleash the foot soldiers to chase Flake down the hallway and scream, look at me, while he boards an elevator. To quote the document again, it awakens the forces of the people. It breaks through the onerous circle of intimidation and spiritual terror of the old institutions like the church. So that brings me to the actual plan. How did they do this Czechoslovakian revolution and flip this country in three years? Well, culture was number one. It was their biggest threat and their first target of attack. Step one in the overall plan. The idea of attacking culture as the opening salvo was actually ripped from another communist named uh, uh, Antonio Gramsci. Um, He stated that capitalist countries were much too rooted in the culture of capitalism to initiate a workers' revolution on their own. For a government to flip, you had to first attack the culture at the core. Think of this. They listed several key areas, and they were these. Churches, unions, mass media, universities, corporations, and foundations. They promoted open sexuality in freedom in 1948. They charged religious leaders with public crimes and said they were manipulating the government behind the scenes. They painted the church as outdated, racist, and bigoted, a brick wall in the face of progress, to quote. Well, it wasn't long before people were quite literally losing their faith. They infiltrated the Department of Agriculture, at the time representing one of the largest businesses in the country, Agriculture, and it was doing great. But they set up peasant commissions in local villages that constantly criticized the capitalist culture of profit and wealth. And they said that it was discriminating against the poor farmers and laborers. So culture began to turn completely upside down. Then, step two was to ensure that any kind of republic style democracy would never be a possibility. Kozak, the author of this, said that direct democracy was the instrument of the social revolution. He credited direct democracy as giving, quote, a rise to far-reaching political, economic, social, and cultural changes in the country. They were, they were building and whipping up a reactionary mob, and direct democracy would be the tool that would ultimately transform the country overnight. Step three, what a surprise, gun control. Guns 
<laughs> it was this crucial step here. The report states that guns for the masses had to be outlawed. Only those who were, quote, responsible would be allowed to have a firearm. Well, guess who was responsible? The Ministry of the Interior within the government was nearly fully infiltrated by socialists at the time, and they built up their own police force. They, of course, were the responsible ones, those in government, those who were socialist, those who agreed, as were the newly formed Marxist militias that were beginning to appear in the rural areas. Everyone else had to surrender their guns. Step four was popularize revolutionary demands. They were really, really good at this. They created this uh, plan called the Program of Building, which was framed as progress. It included the redistribution of wealth, land, and nationalization. Socialist politicians in the government would send their plans directly to the foot soldiers on the ground, and they would shame any capitalist, any politician, any civilian that would vote against it, and they would say they're voting against the will of the people. They would out them in the media. They would shame them. They would destroy them. They claimed that they had been bought by wealthy businessmen or farmers. Turning over control to the government was progress, and private ownership was deemed against the people's will. Now, one example of how they effectively manipulated the masses was by proposing the millionaire's levy better known as a millionaire wealth tax. It didn't have anything at all to do with giving the money to the poor. It was all about manipulation and isolating capitalists. If anyone opposed it, they were instantly branded as being anti-people or anti-poor or oppressors. The document marveled at the success of how effective this manipulation really was. Let me quote, How important for the isolation of the bourgeois leadership of the other parties of the National Front was the proposal of the millionaire's levy alone, tabled in the government by the communists in 1947, at first rejected by its majority. It was all just a con. It was a manipulative isolation tactic. And the last step was to activate the bottom up. They had to mobilize the ground game from the bottom and coordinate it with the government officials at the top. They created a laundry list of organizations. Some of them were large. Some of them had national membership. Some of them were small, existing mainly in small villages and towns. Some of them included the United Revolutionary Trade Union, the United Association of Czech Peasantry, the Association of Liberated Political Prisoners, and smaller peasantry um, commissions. With direct coordination from the socialists within the government, these small and large organizations held nationwide rallies and protests. They pressured businesses and politicians to toe the party line. Anyone that strayed, if you were in business and you wouldn't go along, you were publicly shamed or set upon by a large gathering. This was their five-year plan. It took them three years to flip a country. The results came swift and brutally. And keep in mind, this is 1945. In 1945, it was a capitalist country that protected private ownership. It was so American. But by 1947, 75% of all industry had been nationalized. 
Land from large farm owners had been completely liquidated and given to other people. In 1948, communist control had become so great that they grabbed what little power was left. Many have called that final power grab an outright coup. What was... What was a strong economy began to crumble almost overnight. Currency and wages declined. Banks began seizing savings and deposits. The police state had to grow stronger. They held mock trials. They crushed protests. The media was censored. Yes, they started digging ditches and shooting people. Czechoslovakia would endure this hell for 40 years. For those living in Eastern Europe during that time, the stories of living under these repressive socialist regimes are strikingly and horribly similar. So, there's a couple of things. This is just a quick thumbnail of of this. But I have been overwhelmed at how far down the road we are. Has anyone noticed how fast all of this is happening? How did we go from a country that we we couldn't even admit that we were socialist? You couldn't say that. That was racist to say, hey, I think Van Jones, a former communist, might be a radical. That was racist just a few years ago to now people coming out and saying capitalism is over. Do you remember what I said about the first chalkboard and how that's going? I need you to see first how this is being implemented and then what's coming. But let me just take a quick break, go over to Stu, and um, we really want to take your questions on today's show. We have an amazing panel for you, um, and I so appreciate you watching. If this is useful at all, please, please, silencing of voices is coming. And we need to stand together. And honestly, I don't care if you, if you subscribe to The Daily Wire with Ben Shapiro. He's a friend. He's got a great thing going on over there. And they're great people. Just support one, whoever your voice is, whoever you want to support the blaze of The Daily Wire. I don't care. But please, please support us and join us at The Blaze TV. Stu. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, look, this isn't just a history lesson. It's, it's what's going on right now. Right now, as we speak, there are people in Venezuela risking their lives to escape socialism, but we're running to it. How does that happen? A big chunk of that is the media. Uh, they make socialism sound so, so wonderful. Uh, and you can understand why people think it's so great if they don't know the actual truth. Uh, the networks are not going to give you a programming like this. You're not going to get investigations like this from the mainstream media. It's, you know it's not happening. We, as Glenn mentioned, you know, everyone from the Daily Wire to the Blaze, we need to have your support if you want to go into this sort of stuff. We can certainly run our mouths all day, and that's always fun to do, and you've got to do that sometimes. But to really go in depth on something like this, that's, you know, that's not going to be a sexy, clickbaity headline. You really need to have the resources to do it. And this is all, this is all you. You guys have made this happen so far and we want to do more of this stuff. So we really ask you to come on board. And if you can subscribe, uh, I think you should. I mean, I think it's a great value anyway. You got great shows like Steven Crowder and Mark Levin and Eric Bowling and Allie and everybody here. Um, which is great. Chad Prather, Graham Allen, there's a million of them. Um, so that's great right on, on its surface, but it's also, 
We're talking about a community. It's a movement. It's really a machine to push back against what the mainstream media is telling people, uh, trying to get the truth out there, trying to push back and actually show people what is actually going on, not only with history, but present and also uh, the future. If you can subscribe, we'd love you to. Go to, uh, to, to blazetv.com slash Glenn, blazetv.com slash Glenn. Use the promo code GB20OFF, GB20OFF. They'll get you 20 bucks off the subscription. We'd love for you to join. If you can't join, uh, if it's not uh, the right thing for you right now, that's totally cool. We understand. Uh, if you could subscribe to the YouTube page, of course, that's free. We're going to be posting stuff there. Uh, you know, Share this video, like it help uh, spread the word, because if people can find out about this and find out about the truth, uh, it's really going to be something that, uh, really the only way that we can change this and stop it from happening. Um, we're also going to be doing a question and answer uh, thing coming up with Glenn uh, in just a few minutes. Um, you're going to be a part of that. If you tweet uh, with the hashtag uh, GlennTVLive, you can also post on Facebook or wherever uh, you can reach us on social media. Uh, use that hashtag GlennTVLive. Uh, that would be great. Please tell your friends, spread the word, and make sure that people know this information because you're not going to get it anywhere else. Uh, now, more with Glenn and socialism. A warning from the dead. Well, my name is Alex Nason. Uh, I was born in the former Soviet Union, the state of Moldova. Spending my first 26 years over there kind of showed me what socialism, the real socialism is. People never had enough food. I had to wake up every morning at 6 in the morning, be in the line outside of the store in February to wait until the store will open so I would be able to get a bottle of milk for my wife and my son. So the first time I saw uh, a small supermarket in the United States, I was uh, thinking that this is <laughs> a uh, fairy tale. Uh, we spent about an hour just walking around and, and looking and couldn't believe that everything is available here. We were told that every third person in the former Soviet Union was a spy for uh, the KGB or the uh, secret police. It became a part of norm when we were talking. We would always look behind our shoulders. When I arrived to the States, it took me about five years to get rid of that um, habit of looking behind the shoulders. I was in the seventh grade, and on the way home, the first day, a couple of guys from my class realized that I'm Jewish, and they beat me up, just simply because I was Jewish. Came back home with some black eye, and I took the matters in my hands. I went to the freestyle wrestling. In six months, I became the city champion and I kind of took care of the matter by myself. Um, that was my first like, real experience with, for, for real, no reasons, being beaten up. When my wife went into the labor, uh, I was not allowed to get into the hospital that I brought her in about uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. 
And I didn't know until 10 o'clock the next morning that I have a son. When they brought the kid for her to feed, she could show me, like, from the third floor. I, I mean, I didn't see, of course, anything, but I, I saw that she has... And after bribing one of the nurses, I, I gave her, I believe, half of my monthly salary. She told me that I have a son and everything is okay. When we moved to the United States, it was like uh, starting from the beginning. Everything was, whatever we left in Russia was at least 50 years behind. Uh, our son was three and a half years old and he wanted a drink. I've never tried a Coke. I'd only have heard about Coke back in Russia. Uh, so uh, we saw that machine and uh, we didn't know how to operate. So we were waiting until someone, a little kid came in and put a quarter in and pushed that button and we did the same. So it was, it wasn't funny. I mean, I, I almost cried later in the day because I, I, I had to start from, from the beginning. That's how behind the socialist system was uh, in Russia. Uh, it, it was unreal. I, I mean, I, I, we were told that the capitalist system here in the United States is nothing what we had back in the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union is way ahead of everyone. Welcome to the year 1947, because if you go by this playbook, that is exactly where we are currently at. I am really bad at timing, but I am overwhelmed um, to share with you that our time is running short, I believe. You have to decide where you stand. You have to think out of the box, and you have to look at things and take people at their words. You can't subscribe uh, your thoughts and your feelings to other people, especially when they are telling you what they're going to do. If you look at what happened in 1945 to 1948, the parallels are exact. just, it's uncanny. For instance, step one, here's our revolution today, culture. To attack the culture, just look what's happening to the church and our religious liberty. Faith organizations are under full frontal assault like never before. The sex abuse scandal within the Catholic Church, it might be their own fault, whatever, but it's now being used to demonize not only the Catholic faith, but all Christians as a whole. It's even caused Catholics to lose their faith and abandon their church. Catholic nuns were even forced to go against their religious doctrine and provide birth control due to Obamacare's birth control mandate. But this is, this is America, and this is the church. No matter how much some crazy government official at the top may be attacking the church, we'd never in a million years have a bottom-up reaction like what, down, what went down in Czechoslovakia, right? I mean, it's not like people are storming Catholic churches and harassing people at worship. I mean, that would be nuts. 
wouldn't it? The parishioners in the pews, many frozen in disbelief as protesters invade their mass to pass out literature and shout that they're worshiping in the wrong way. Repent. Attend to Jesus Christ. Pope is a Satan. Pope is a Satan. Mary's statue is a Satan. If you think that's bad, think about how much worse it's going to be in just a few more years. The church is under attack globally. And the pressure from the top in many countries is intensifying. You remember this from a United States senator who's now running for president? Watch. I do want to give you a chance to speak about your comments on gay and lesbians. You said in a speech that uh, mourning in America that endorses perversion and calls it an alternative lifestyle, is your words, is being gay a perversion? Senator, I, 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 when I was a politician, I had a very clear view on uh, whether it was appropriate for two same-sex persons to marry. I stand by that. So, you, so it's, you do not believe it's appropriate for two gay people to marry? Senator, I continue to hold that view. It's the same view. And so people in the State Department, I've met some in Africa, that are married under your leadership. You do not believe that that should be allowed? Senator, I, I, we have, I, I believe it's the case, we have married uh, gay couples at the CIA, you should know. I treated them with the exact same set of rights. You, believe, exact it, same you believe that gay sex is a perversion? His credentials were not on trial here. His faith was, his Christianity, what he believed, his right to believe something different. Now, if he is going out and attacking people, that's different. But this is Salem, 1692. Only the questioning wasn't, are you a witch? It is, are you a Christian? Do you believe that stuff, yes or no? Mass media and the universities. Do I even need to go over that? They're both leftist propaganda tools at this, pro, uh, at this point, and the media bias goes directly to the heavy socialist infiltration on college campuses. It's happening. According to a National Association of Scholars study, out of 9,000 professors and 51 of the top-rated schools that they looked at, the number of Democrat to Republican communications faculty members is 108 to zero. The number of conservative communication professors is actually zero? No one? You think media bias is bad now. I fear we haven't seen anything yet. In big businesses, Czechoslovakia, they targeted agriculture. Socialists today are targeting agriculture. They're targeting Silicon Valley. They're targeting big tech. There was a report that was, and I don't have it with me, uh, that was smuggled out of Media Matters Conference. It was conducted by Hillary Clinton's acolyte, David Brock. And it describes in detail how they are now collaborating with Facebook and Google, which is YouTube, and they have even secured raw data from them. Do you think anybody on the right is going to get raw data from Facebook, YouTube, or Google? I can't even get them to tell me exactly what people are doing that, are, that is offending them so much at Google and YouTube and Facebook. Last year, nearly every big tech firm in the country co-signed a letter opposing the Trump administration's audacity to say that biology is what defines a person's gender. For you to now say that there is a difference between a man and a woman, you're a heretic. And these are the people that are supposed to be all about science. 
It's no longer accurate to say we're losing the culture. It is lost. Step two, direct democracy. Remember how important this was. It was an instrument of the socialist revolution. Our founders said direct democracy always ends in slavery and tyrants. After seeing this plan fully exposed, is it any surprise that all of this is being said from radicals right now in the government? Ocasio-Cortez tweeting, quote, It is well past time we eliminate the Electoral College, a shadow of slavery's power Mm. on America today that undermines our nation as a democratic republic. Do you think the Electoral College should be abolished? I said that in 2000 after what happened to uh, the 2000 election with Al Gore. Well, I'm in the process now writing an article that says we, there's a simple solution to it. We have to just abolish the Electoral College. First of all, we should understand Hillary Clinton got more votes than Donald Trump. And maybe we might want to take a look at the whole Electoral College, in which case is seating a man for president who did not get the most votes. Direct democracy is an end to freedom. It always is. Top-down, bottom-up. It will not work unless they abolish the Electoral College. If you want to know who's following this strategy, make a note of those calling for the abolishment of the Electoral College. This is one of the most crucial stages of their plan. It has to be done. Step three, guns. Has to be. That has to happen. It's another example that barely needs an explainer. The left is going all out on their assault on the Second Amendment. But their bottom-up tactics are becoming more obvious. Debbie Wasserman Schultz took the Parkland survivors, took them all in, and introduced them to the power players in Washington, D.C., and suddenly the March for Our Lives was born, and it was flush with cash. She was even one of the key speakers at the event, and we're supposed to believe that this was purely a grassroots movement with no top-down support. Let me ask you this. If these radicals really believe that Donald Trump is a dictator, why, why would you say you should give your guns to the government? It's insanity. Step four, popularize revolutionary demands. The wealth tax. Have you heard that? This is where you truly go from capitalism to socialism. One of the ways the communists in Czechoslovakia were able to popularize redistribution was by shaming capitalists that opposed the millionaire's tax. Well, luckily, no one here would ever copy that in the land of the free, right? You have this proposal all today. It's a wealth tax. It's very interesting. Yep. It's not it's not income, right? So incomes are flows. Uh, yep. You know, everyone, money coming into people a year, and that's usually how we tax things. Wealth is sitting there. It's a stock. It's a thing that's sitting there, and a wealth tax is a novel idea in the American context. It's on the very richest households with $50 million or more in assets. It's about 75,000 households. It would bring in a lot of money, $275 billion a year. So this is a lot. Um, there's also, Stop. We don't uh, need uh, to see any more. The millionaire's levy has now become today wealth tax. Do you remember the Czechoslovakian program of building? This was all really about um, gathering popular support to initiate the redistribution of wealth and land by nationalizing industry. Well, that name is so 1940s. We should change it today to the New Green Deal. This is what the Green New Deal is really all about. In fact, it says right here, this is the actual proposed legislation. It says, 
the select committee shall have the authority to develop a detailed national industrial economic mobilization plan for the transition of the United States economy to promote an economic and environmental justice and equality. This is the end of capitalism. And by the way, if you truly care about the environment, if you're concerned about temperatures and sea level, what does it say that every time the, the people create this new Green Deal talk about it, they say that this is the priority? Watch. What are some of the specific things you can point to that you think are practical? We want a federal jobs guarantee. We want to expand labor rights. We need to expand indigenous people's rights. We need to give workers a, Stop. a consistent... How, how is that going to save us from all burning to death or drowning or freezing to death? This has nothing to do with the environment. This is a change of the economy. It even states... In the original Green New Deal, the document with what the entire thing is about, it talks about mitigating inequalities in income and wealth, including without limitation, ensuring that federal and other investment will be equitably distributed to historically impoverished, low-income, deindustrialized, or other marginalized communities in such a way that builds wealth and ownership at the community level. That doesn't sound very climate-changey, does it? The bottom-up response... Well, it turns out the Green New Deal proposal doesn't even try to hide how they're going to incorporate that part of their strategy. It states, quote, they will deeply involve national and local labor unions to take a leadership role. Huh. That's in here, too. I know I said the mask would start to come off, but this is ridiculous how fast it has happened. And once you see this plan and how you can flip a country in three years, is anyone waking up? People always start with a boogeyman. For the socialists in Germany, it was the Jews. For the socialists in Czechoslovakia, it was the Nazi collaborators. They held mock trials and confiscated their farms, their wealth, their businesses. Were they guilty? Who knows? Who cares? They had two choices, admit guilt or be shot. As I said either uh, earlier, two years later, this tactic had allowed them to nationalize 75% of the country's industries. Today, that boogeyman is climate or anyone accused of Me Too or the NRA or anyone who's wearing a red baseball cap. They slap the Nazi, fascist, alt-right label on it. It's insane. They're insanely branded guilty in the court of public social media opinion. Anyone dares to explain themselves is publicly shamed, ostracized, and alienated. Again, exactly what this document says the Soviets were doing in Czechoslovakia. And the last step, mobilize the bottom-up. Mass labor organizations, activist groups, and unions... They've all been in the back pockets of the left for ever. It went into overdrive during the Obama administration, SEIU, as I told you, spent $150 million back in 2008 to elect Barack Obama and secure a Democratic supermajority in Congress. During that same time, George Soros worked side by side with his SEIU, pouring in millions. And please don't talk to me about how I am anti-Semitic for bringing up George Soros. I don't care about his heritage or his religion. I care about his ideology. 
And just a couple of years after getting their pieces placed at the top, Soros, along with SEIU and the Tides Foundation, were funding Occupy Wall Street, the foot soldiers at the bottom. This is the Czechoslovakian communist strategy to the letter. And it is the same today with the bottom-up movements like the Women's March and the Tax March. What we're getting from the top regarding um, immigration now is so obvious. There's no crisis at the borders. Migrants aren't, aren't flooding our borders. There's nothing to see here. That plan is a campaign to make America white again. It's a plan that says over 50% of the current legal immigration will be cut back. Okay, stop. That many people you know will all be of this. You know all of this. According to Custom and Border Patrol, there are over 58,000 apprehensions on the southwest border in January. That number has now skyrocketed to over 76,000 in February. The numbers in March have topped more than 100,000. Why do we have Brexit? Why is... Why is Europe in shambles today? One, they were irresponsible with their money. Two, their governments have been lying to people. Well, we got both of those things. The third thing was you had people coming up from the Middle East, all these migrants. They were forced to take them. Every, all of these experts, the same people who are saying this to us, the same people were saying this is good for Europe. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't, and it's happening now. The numbers for just the first two months of this year are nearly doubling those of the past five years. So why lie about it? Because it's all about manipulation. It's all about alienating and ostracizing those who that are against the people, as Kozak described from the party of the people. I exposed earlier this month that a bottom-up Marxist communist organization led by Emma Lozano, I talked about her a few minutes ago, was helping organize these caravans from a church in Chicago. They're involved with multiple communist issues, people and organizations, people like Angela Davis and organizations like the Communist Party USA. Cash is flowing into their coffers, provided in part by people like George Soros. Meanwhile, those wealthy donors are funding leftists in the government who turn around and press for open borders. Back in March, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez threatened the moderate Democrats. Remember, Cortez is not a problem for the Republicans. Cortez and all of these other new people that have come in, they challenged the Democrats. And many of the Democrats are terrified of them because of things like this. She said she would send the Democratic names to street activists if they didn't vote her way. This is practically pulled straight out of this document. Intimidate, publicly shame, and alienate. Top down, bottom up, inside out. So now we're left with, what do we do? (sighs) What do we do? Well, first of all, We have to make sure that we can communicate with one another. We have to make sure that voices aren't stifled. I I urge you to join a group of people. It does not have to be the blaze. I would like for you to, to join us. If you found this valuable, we'd like to do more of this, but we need your support 
advertisers. We're being completely boycotted on um, on YouTube and Facebook. They demonetize almost everything I do without even listening to it. Please join us. The next thing is you have to know. You have to know what you do know and what you don't know. And be humble in what you know and fearless in your pursuit of what you do not know. For instance, can you defend the Constitution? I'm tired of being against stuff. Let's be for something. Who is standing up for the Constitution and the Bill of Rights? It's something that all of us should agree on. But you can't defend it if you don't know it. Most people cannot give the five rights in the First Amendment, let alone ten. Can you defend the free market and entrepreneurship over socialism? Can you? Well, let me go through a couple of numbers. See if you even even heard of this. After a shooting, cable news will focus on guns, right? But these improvements are the equivalent of erasing all gun-related murders, just the things that we have done as a capitalist system to be able to to, um, help children live. Just the advances we've made in medicine. Improvements are the equivalent of erasing all gun-related murders for 630 years. (sighs) Cable news will obsess over a plane crash for months. But the improvements we've made in medicine since 1990 are the equivalent of averting 27 plane crashes full of children every single day. The rate of children dying before the age of five has dropped by over half since 1990. Someone who went to school in the 1990s, the rate of students killed per million in fatal shootings dropped by over 75%. Did you know that? Did you even know that? Among men in the U.S. since 1990, colon cancer has dropped by 30%. Lung cancer has dropped by 40%. Prostate cancer has dropped by 45%. Stomach cancer has dropped by 50%. In 1952, there were 57,879 cases of polio in the U.S. In 2017, there were zero. Why? Was it socialized medicine? The rate of forcible rape in our country dropped by over 30% since the 1990s. I thought we were living in a rape culture. It's down 30%. The homicide rate in the United States, the most dangerous place in the world, you know, dropped by half from the levels of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Half. Population that is homeless and unsheltered 0.1% in the United States, 20% of the world. We don't have it bad. You know, once you really know who you are and what you know, what you believe, and when you're in control of your anger and the sword that you always draw out first is reason and is, is heart, then, perhaps, then, you're ready to move on to the next stage. You're ready to start thinking the unthinkable. Because that's what you have to do. The normalcy bias has got to stop. They can tell you all the time, we don't want to stop capitalism. But in their own writings, yes, they do read the Green New Deal. 
You have to think out of the box. It can happen here. You are not different. Neither am I. Truth is truth. Math is only true when 2 plus 2 equals 4. It equals 4 every time. No matter how you arrived at 3 or 5, it's 4. If you want to see what's coming, just start taking people at their word. No matter how unlikely it seems to you that there's no way that you would end capitalism, if they're saying they want to, they will. Take people at their word when they say, you know what? You know, I kill you. I don't know. You might say that a million times to a friend, and it doesn't mean that everybody is joking when they say that. When Islamists say they're going to kill you, take them at their word. And you know what? When you're proven wrong or you learn something new, admit it. And admit it loudly and first. Do you remember the book I talked about, The Coming Insurrection? It was a book that described in detail how France would spiral out of control. People thought I was crazy. Oh, France spiraling out of control. But this book wasn't written by some underground punk rock movement. This was from the French intellectual elite. And many of them went to jail for its publication. Why? Were they inciting or were they just predicting? Quite honestly, I think it's a little of both. Because for revolutions to happen, there has to be an appetite for it. And the people of France, the socialists, the real socialists, were tired of the democratic socialist politician who would promise all the socialist utopia ideas, only then to disappoint election after election, never throwing off the free market, just giving them the crumbs of another big bloated government program. Revolutionaries only bide their time for so long until they begin to act. And they've begun to act all over the world, and they're beginning to act here in America. France is ahead of us by a couple of years, I guess. But it all begins with looking at political revolutionaries who are kicking up dirt because that politician or that politician isn't finishing the job. Van Jones is not radical enough for the left now. That should tell you something. AOC and Omar are now saying the same things about President Obama. He wasn't radical enough? When I first read The Coming Insurrection, I saw huge parallels to what was happening here. But no one would even talk about it back then. This cannot be the case this time. It's why I made this special for free. You must do your own homework and decide if this is true or not. And if you find it to be true, share it with all in that are in your circle of influence. We're running out of time. So what could my possible motivation be? Well, I will tell you this. I grew up in an alcoholic family, and I'm, I'm what specialists would call the mascot of the family. I love that. The mascot of the family. The mascot is the one who tries to reduce the stress of the family by goofing around. They joke. They, they just do anything they can to distract the family from the problems. That's what I do. That's what I've always done in my family. I, I don't like tension. I don't like conflict. This has allowed me to survive some pretty stressful times. It gives me a very dark sense of humor about my dysfunctional family or my mother's suicide or whatever. But it has helped me as a default in stressful times. It has always allowed me to look elsewhere. Hmm. I hate conflict. And if you've been listening to me for a while, you probably can tell this because I've tried to be a a, a peacemaker I really have. And usually it's to my own detriment. 
I can wish and hope, and I can just, you know, please, please, please believe the best in people, but sometimes that horse is not a unicorn, and no matter how much I hope it to be true, pigs never have wings. This summer, after I realized that the warning I had given to you in 2011 at Fox about the caliphate and the destabilization that would eventually jump here and come to our own southern border was now at completion, and it was now time for me, I guess, to be able to see the rest, I was prompted to write down a series of events to watch for that would be road signs, mile markers, and exits that we can, should we choose to save ourselves, that we could take. It was unbelievably clear and extensive, and it came fast. I've already shared a lot of it, a summary of it, in a three-part series that you can now find on blazetv.com. It boils down basically to four points. I don't know what happens first. I don't know how it all comes to fruition. But I do know that these four things will precede a global shift. And it will not end well for man's freedom unless we are prepared and know who we are. First, polarization and civil unrest is going to get worse. Two, economic destabilization on a global scale. It is going to be massive. Three, tech disruption. It is also going to be massive. And people will start pointing fingers and nobody will... Everybody... Tech and the government will start to merge into one. And this will be a trust implosion. No one will believe anything or any, anybody. After that prompting, and quite honestly, after years of begging for the opportunity just to bring people together, to be a positive force, to allow me the opportunity just to be a rodeo clown again, it has come clear to me in the last couple of months that each of us have a role to play. I have one and you have one. I don't know what yours is, but we need to accept and complete our task. Mine is not to make the country laugh or, God forbid, distract or, frankly, be the one who leads us to some grand answer. My only role, I believe, is to warn you. doesn't mean these things are going to happen, but if we don't change our ways, it will. My job is to tell you what you already know in your gut on both sides. And you know what? Yes, America has made terrible mistakes. All of us have. From the beginning, I'm now at the point where I believe our founders should not have compromised on slavery. I've always accepted that because they had to start the country, but I don't even know. They trusted God on everything else, and then they failed to trust him on slavery. They compromised, and then we did it again. We failed after the Civil War. Lincoln was shot. We didn't heal the wounds. He told us, heal the wounds of the nation, but we didn't do it. In the 1960s, we were too tired and afraid to look straight in the eye what the problem was because JFK, Malcolm X, MLK, RFK all shot, riots in the streets. The world was on fire and all of us just wanted to go back to the normalcy bias. America at the time became the mascot of the family of man. We tuned in, laugh in, and tuned out our pain. Abraham Lincoln knew all of this. It was his message of the second inaugural address. It's the second shortest inaugural address in history, and yet probably one of the most memorable that almost, well, I can't say this anymore, a lot of us uh, could have quoted at some point in our life. It's only 100 and, uh, sorry, 701 words, 
But in that 701 words, Lincoln mentions God 14 times. He quotes the Bible four times. He invokes prayer three times. Ten years after he was shot, it was the Chief Justice uh, Chase that gave the Bible that, that Lincoln put his hand on and took the oath. And when he took the oath, when he finished, he actually took that Bible and he kissed the pages. Well, we know now what the pages were that he kissed, and they were from Isaiah 5, 27, 28. That says, none shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the, the fet of their shoes be broken. Whose, whose arrows are sharp and their bows best, their horses' hooves shall be counted like flint, their wheels like a whirlwind. Forty-one days after he called for, for us to come together and heal the wounds of the nation, he was shot. But his words still kindle something in us. The spirit of Lincoln's words still stir our soul. And I think it's because at his moment of triumph, at his moment saying, yeah, we won, he chose humility. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If he shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills it to be removed, and that he gives both north and south this terrible war as woe due to those by whom came the offense. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continues until all the wealth piled up by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword, as it was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said today. The judges of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. America, we must heed Lincoln's message again. Offenses will come, and woe unto us by whom the offense has come. The most important message I can give you tonight is this. Those who wish to enslave others for their own power, their own gain, and their own glory are not enemies of mine or yours. They are enemies of His, because these rights ultimately belong to Him, and they have been loaned to us for safekeeping for the next generation. It is our responsibility. We must stand up and protect those rights. We must live up to the words of our founding mission that, yes, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have fallen short time and time again. It's a lofty goal, but worth it. But if all of us 
with real humility recognize our wrongs. We begin to show not anger or vengeance or hatred towards others, but rather empathy and just show simple, small kindness. If we meekly ask for forgiveness, admit our faults and turn our face back to him, he will make up for the shortfall and he will heal our land. We must embrace, we must stand firm for and further the cause of individual sovereignty, justice, individual justice, and individual dignity. Social justice of the 1850 has been perverted intentionally into collective justice of today, and it is a lie, it is evil, and it is bloodthirsty. The founding declaration words are worth dying for. But more importantly, they are worth living for. And live we must. Socialism, collectivism, authoritarianism, I don't care what you call it, it's a death cult. But it will not and cannot be beaten by fighting hate with hate or lies with more lies. We will not survive if our goal is just to change men's minds or to win. We must change men's hearts, including our own. There is no winning when half the country feels like they've just lost. But here's where we've gone wrong. We don't think we have anything in common, but we do. No one crosses an ocean in a rickety wooden sailboat for months. Nobody risks their lives in a homemade raft to cross the Gulf to get to Florida or send their children to cross a dangerous river in the middle of the night with dangerous coyotes because of our GDP or our low unemployment rate or even, yes, blessed universal health care. People don't come here for that. They come here for the American idea. For most of the world who are currently praying for us, please, America, wake up. We still are the shining city on the hill. They can see it. Perhaps we've grown so accustomed to freedom's lamp that we no longer turn around to even notice the flame that lights the world's path. Yes, this is a place that sometimes sucks. This is a place that sometimes you get rich, sometimes you don't. This is a place where if you work hard, play by the rules, and build your own mousetrap, sometimes you can live the life you design. Perhaps you'll even become rich. But when we look at the entire population of the entire earth, even the poorest among us in America are the wealthiest 1%. But even this argument is missing the point. That is a uniquely spoiled, entitled, and American way of looking at things because people do not escape oppression to come here to get rich. They come here to be free. And at this hour... At least at this hour, we still are. But the hour grows late. Have we become so arrogant that we are blind to our own true wealth? Are God-given freedoms protected by the Bill of Rights? I love the line from Thomas Paine, Heaven knows how to put the proper price on something so celestial as freedom. And just as it was said before, if he decides that all of the American wealth be piled up in one giant heap and be sunk, then it still must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The foe we fight 
is not the name we hear every night on cable news. It's not the ones in the voting booths, not the one of the other parties, whoever it is that we hear. That's not who our foe is. Our foe is found in our own arrogance, in our own apathy, in our own self-imposed ignorance. Our enemy is us, our doubts, our fears, our anger, our own foolish misplaced pride. We do not fight flesh and bone. We fight the same evil faced by the ancients that have gone before us. I ask you tonight to ponder these things, to do your own homework, to know who you are. And then let us begin again with malice toward none, with charity for all, with the firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Can we strive on to finish the work that we're all in? Can we bind up the nation's wounds? Can we achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations? Take me away, far away from